Hey everybody, you're listening to Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. The podcast where we take you on a deeper dive into the lives of the animals at Georgia Aquarium and the people who care for them. Coming up on this episode. So I find myself on the deck of a boat, 10 p.m. at night, raining with a big hoop net in my hands. And I've been told by Jeff Corwin, hey buddy, we're gonna shine a flashlight when you see those, when you see those glowing eyes, you're gonna scoop that sea snake out of the ocean and throw it on deck. Piranhas, for instance, are big chickens. We dive with them on a weekly basis. The second we hit the water, they run away. So not really that much of a threat to us when we're in the water with them. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Life Below the Surface. This is your host Josh, and today I'm joined by curator of the Fish and Invertebrates team, Nathan Farnow. Nate, welcome to the podcast, buddy. It's good to be here, Josh. Now, okay, you work with some of the most unique species, not only in just the River Scout Gallery, but probably also the entire aquarium, from giant pufferfish to piranhas and our awesome American alligator. So those are what most people would assume to be some kind of typically dangerous, potentially sounding animals there. And you actually get to interact with these animals on almost a daily basis, right? That's right. And I think the reputation is a little bit uh, unwarranted. I mean, they are predators. They do kind of own their environments. But when it comes to interacting with on on a day-to-day basis with these guys, they're very mellow. They actually, piranhas, for instance, are big chickens. We dive with them on a weekly basis. The second we hit the water, they run away. So not really that much of a threat to us when we're in the water with them. So we're going to take a quick step back here. You just mentioned chickens. Chickens are birds. They are. And you are a huge bird fanatic. I am a bird fanatic. Do you remember that one time I had to put my foot in my mouth when I was on my way to lunch and you were walking through Centennial Park with your binoculars on? Yeah. And I had no idea that you love to actually urban bird watch. Yeah. And I (laughs) walked up to you and I said, oh, hey, Nate, what are you doing? Bird watching? Do you remember what you said? I don't recall. I've blocked it out of my memory. What did I say? I go, hey, Nate, what are you doing? Bird watching? Yep. <laughs> and that was it. And you just kept walking. And- yeah, I'm, I'm sensitive about my birding because, you know, in the park with binoculars, people think I'm some kind of a creeper. You know, I want to make sure that, that people know that I'm looking at, you know, hemispheric level migration events that happen right here in Atlanta. Especially when the blue tits are moving through, right? That's, That's a European gotta- species. Yep. Very true. Don't see those in America. <laughs> Okay. All right. So we got that out of our system. Now let's, let's go back to, to River Scout. All right. To work with an animal like a piranha, to work with an animal like an American alligator, there has to be some, some time and some, some patience kind of involved, especially when it comes to the fact that these animals, especially when you're talking about the American alligator, are actually very trainable. Absolutely. Yeah. American alligators are really responsive to training. But the one thing that does require patience is the fact that these cold-blooded animals, they don't need nearly as much food or caloric intake per day than a lot of the warm-blooded guys that you yourself have trained, things like sea lions. You know, they're warm-blooded. They use more than 90% of their calories to just keep their bodies at a, at a specific temperature, just like we do. Mm-hmm. Very so fast need, metabolisms, yeah. Yeah, they need a lot more food per day, which means you have a lot more opportunity to reinforce certain behaviors. So you could probably get a whole lot more done with a sea lion than you could in the same amount of time 
with an alligator. But what are some of the things that you and your team have been able to actually train? I've got a chance to watch a couple sessions and it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, our training priorities focus on making sure that animals have their own spaces during feeds because, you know, like the friendly fire concept can occur if animals are snapping at the same food items. And our alligators are special because we have a group of albinos, which are super interesting, super rare. And one of the things that comes with their albinism is poor eyesight. So we need to manage them such that they don't absolutely nip their buddies when they're feeding. So we, we've trained them to come to specific feeding stations. And uh, also we're training some veterinary care behaviors such as behavioral weights, which will essentially allow us to bring an animal onto a scale and get a weight without having to capture it in any kind of way that would stress it out. Very cool. The albino and the other alligators, just the, the regular color morph mm -hmm. alligators, they live in a habitat called Gator Crossing. Correct. Now, Gator Crossing was a very unique experience for me because that was basically, we were in the middle of the shark's expansion. Right. And then the powers that be said, hey, let's open up an alligator exhibit sometime in the middle of the massive $100 million shark expansion. Right. Why so, not? Yeah, why not? Of course, like you do. <laughs> we had a month and a half to basically convert, I believe it was alligator gar, right? Is that who was in the, in the glass bottom habitat before? Yeah, a lot of different native North American river fishes like alligator gars and carp and, and bass and fish like that. Right. So, yeah, we converted the alligator gar exhibit into gator crossing. And uh, that was a pretty amazing experience just given the, the timetable, number one, but yeah. also converting something so it was not only a great habitat for your animals, but also giving you that opportunity to be able to have uh, dynamic training sessions and care of these animals too. Absolutely, yeah. We expanded their universe a whole lot. This new habitat was expansive, big, diverse, multi-levels, and really provides an excellent habitat for the animals and a great context for us to train these, these behaviors. So it's been a, a win-win for everybody. And for the longest time, too, we had um, the albino alligators were kind of hanging out in more of the swampy zone. Mm -hmm. And then the smaller, normal colored animals were in the, the gator shack, where we actually took a John boat from Bass Pro Shops, right. made it water sealed, added a life support infiltration system and converted it into one of the most unique, I think, uh, aquatic little habitats I think I've ever seen. Yeah, the narrative in that space, which you know very well since you were instrumental in designing it, is sort of like the, the life after people. This is a flooded out bayou shack that uh, is leaking from its roof. It's filled up this old John boat with water and there are alligators living in there. So it's a pretty cool image, kind of puts you really in that environment down in uh, the coastal plain in places like Louisiana, South Alabama, where alligators run amok. So it's a really cool habitat and really exciting for our guests. So a little Easter egg. I'm not going to give it away here because we want to get back to the animals. But if you're visiting Gator Crossing, Nate talked about the, the fact that I was part of the design team. Take a look when you're around, the, uh, around the, the bait shack, if you will. There's a newspaper clipping on the wall that tells the whole story. And on that newspaper clipping, I was able to Photoshop in a photo of my boss, Michael Lewis. Huh. And he had no idea until it was installed that it was him. But it's Love it. definitely him. And it kind of gives you that, that whole backstory. And there's some really cool little theming elements and things on the wall, all from the design team. You know, it's a lot of our family members are there in the back. One of my coworkers, Blake, decided to put a charcoal portrait of himself on <laughs> the shelf for <laughs> eternity. And other really, really cool things like that. So there's a lot of heart and a lot of theming that went into that, that Gator Shack. 
and that whole habitat. And one of my favorite uh, kind of memories of that too, and I don't know if you remember this, do you remember how the mural behind the habitat was painted? I don't remember how that was painted. We had two amazing theming painters come in and uh, they were at the same time, they were ping-ponging between Orlando and Atlanta. They were working on the Universal Harry Potter brand new roller coaster down wow. there. Yeah. So they were working down there for a week and then coming to Atlanta to finish that mural. And basically they were holding iPads and they were doing it all by hand. I've never seen anything like it. It wasn't mapped out by a grid. It wasn't lasered. And then talent, man. Yeah, they, they weren't trading. And then when you look at that, that's like that mural just catches your eye. Oh, yeah. And then we also I remember we had to check with you to make sure that the egret that they painted back in the swamp was accurate for, you know, for that location. And you gave a blessing and they were able to paint it in there. So speaking of Easter eggs, I think you even hung a pair of binoculars with my initials in that shack. Just, you know, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, to right continue outside. to make fun of me for being a bird watcher. <laughs> It was to commemorate me putting my foot in my mouth <laughs> right. that one time where, where are you going, bird watching? Yep. Yep. Okay, see ya. <laughs> uh, so, yes, if you guys look close, there is a uh, like a, a sports folding chair and a gigantic set of binoculars with NF Better on them it. hanging off the side of that shack. So, Nathan uh, Farnow is definitely an integral part of the Gator exhibit, and he lives on in the theming of that space as well. So thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate that. Absolutely welcome. Absolutely welcome. Because you always now have just you always have that one up on me exactly. to remember the whole bird thing. I'm now joined by Carly and Kelsey for another edition of Fin Files. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. What do you have for me today? So I wanted to bring to you a question, which is with planted aquariums, did you know that there's such a thing as a high tech planted aquarium and what that means for that aquarium system? I did not know that. So actually all of our planted systems here at the Georgia Aquarium have live plants and they are considered high tech, which isn't actually that much technology at all, but it just means that we have carbon dioxide, CO2 pumped directly into the system. And um, it actually helps with the plant growth. It gets those like nice bright colors that are varied throughout the system. And it allows us to grow a lot of different types of plants in the same system, which is really cool. So with that CO2 being right in the water column, the plants can immediately uptake it and we get that growth and that really amazing product that you can see throughout the River Scout Gallery. How many planted aquariums do we actually have in the building? Is River Scout the only location or is there other spots where guests can go to, to check out these awesome spots? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't off the top of my head think of how many systems, give you a minute on that, but the Discovery Zone, Aquanaut Adventure also has a couple planted systems up there and we have beautiful aquatic and terrestrial plants throughout the building. So definitely try to notice those too because we put a lot of hard work into plants just like we do the animals here absolutely agree those aquariums look absolutely beautiful so if you guys are here walking around definitely check out all of the planted aquariums all right thank you very much great fun fact today ladies all right so let's get back to the animals here we've talked about the gators uh, pretty extensively here let's talk about the piranhas a little bit Mm -hmm. because i feel like based off of what you said earlier the piranhas are almost like the the sharks in the fact that there's such a misconception. Any critter with teeth seems like it's kind of fodder for those sci-fi B movies to be able just to kind of overindulge their predatory instincts to create some of the worst, but some of the best uh, sci-fi right. movies possible. Right. And piranhas are probably right there with sharks when it comes to just 
easily being able to put them in that scenario of being these like evil monsters. But what has your actual experience with them been? You said you get in once a week with them? Oh yeah, every, every week we dive to, to maintain that habitat. And like I said, they really want nothing to do with us. They have not the first intention of, of attacking or even defending themselves, they just wanna run away, which is what their natural behavior would be in the wild. So it's a fascinating group of animals. They are very social. They take cues off of each other. When we feed, we often will hang fish on lines within carabiners and let them pick the flesh off of those, those fish's bones as they would do in the wild. And that sounds pretty gruesome, and it, and it can be, but it's really, it's really interesting to see their social behavior because the top dog eats first, and that pecking order is clear when, when you see who, who gets to, to come to the dinner table. With regard to their, their bad reputation, part of it starts with their teeth. And they belong to a group of fishes called the Carassiform fishes, which is a huge diversity of species in that group in South America. And uh, they all have teeth in their jaws. Some of them have little tiny teeth, but sort of the extreme of that are fish like the piranhas and the payara, otherwise known as vampire fish down in, down in places like the Orinoco River and in the Amazon. So that dentition or the, the kind of teeth that exist in those jaws are, are suited for, for their life history. And in the case of piranhas, they're predators and they, they love to socially attack their prey in groups. And we kind of try to, to recreate that as much as we can in, in the habitat here at Georgia Aquarium. So in those, in those videos, we've all seen them of the guy dipping the chicken leg into the water right. and the water just goes crazy da, 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 right. and, they're, and they're going nuts. Are those kind of setups like some of the original shark feeding frenzy, you know, documentary videos were, or is that something where during like a, maybe a certain time of year or something like that, 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 I mean, cause there's no denying that that does happen. I mean, sure. obviously it's a kind of video proof there. Is there kind of an explanation for that behavior that then, of course, then gets magnified to sure. any time you enter the water, you're, you know, you pull your foot off and there's just the bone <laughs> right. stump right there. So in many parts of their range in South America, there's a extreme seasonality of rainfall. So there's a wet season and a dry season. And the folks who live in those parts of the world, you know, they live with piranhas every day. They swim with piranhas most of the year and it's perfectly safe. They fish for them, they eat them. But there are times a year when water levels are low and sometimes these small enclosed bodies of water are formed as waters recede. And if there are lots of piranhas in those little temporary wetlands, the locals know to stay out because if those, those animals have already consumed all the prey items in that, in that pool, they might become a little bit more likely to interact with humans in a way that would be unfortunate. So, but that's, that's a rare situation and the locals know how to, how to address each of those scenarios and they get along quite well down in, in South America. I did not realize that people actually ate them. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you travel through the hinterland of Brazil or Venezuela, the locals are fishing and preparing piranha for food everywhere you go. It's very common. They're very widespread in all the tropical river systems down there, and it's a very important food fish. Have you ever had piranha? Absolutely. What did it taste like? Um, it's probably, it, it tastes a little bit more like catfish than some people would probably like, but... It's a little more firm flesh, more like a grouper, but it kind of has sort of an earthy freshwater fish kind of a, a feel to it. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So gators and, and piranhas. River Scout has some other pretty awesome species in there. For sure. Uh, you want to talk about some of the, uh, the other animals that you care for in there? Yeah. One of our habitats is a, a lushly planted sort of underwater garden, and it features fish from Southeast Asia. And and one of the fish that I think is particularly beautiful and charismatic and interesting is our fire eel. 
And he's a, what's called a mastocimbellid eel. And they have these adorable little snouts, but his entire body, the fish is maybe 24 inches long, but he's got these red and black streaks that run all through his body. And he's an absolutely gorgeous animal and very, very, very interactive. We can actually put feeding containers, submerge, submerge them in the water, and he'll enter that feeding container and gobble up all the blood worms and, and other food items that we have. So we try not to, to look at any of our animals in our collection as pets, but this guy is about as close as it comes to being a pet. And uh, my staff would probably gasp if they heard me say that, but I have a special place in my heart for the fire eel. It's interesting you say that, and you didn't do that on purpose, I don't think, but you're going to segue into probably one of the most famous fish that I can possibly think of, thanks to the TV show, The Aquarium. Oh, yeah. You know, I think you know who I'm about to talk about. He is a beautiful puffer fish Absolutely. named Tony. Yes, Anthony Davis is his namesake. I'm a Kentucky Wildcats fan, so we're very proud of our national champion, Anthony Davis, who has the monobrow as his signature look. And uh, if you look at Tony in our Lake Tanganyika habitat, he's got a beautiful monobrow right across the top of his forehead. So, yeah, Anthony Davis is an excellent, also very charismatic animal. He has grown from probably three inches long when we first got him as a baby, and now he's almost three feet long. He's a massive, massive puffer fish, the largest species of puffer fish in the world, endemic to sub-Saharan Africa. He's also done a lot of time with training programs. We can train him to come to feeding targets and, and uh, train him to come into containers if we need to handle him for annual physicals. So he's a really remarkable animal that we've had for many years. I mean, that's a very interesting point. And it is something you mentioned earlier. My animal training experience comes from more of the mammalian side. Dolphins, sure. sea lions, otters, walruses, you know, some birds and smaller mammals, things like that in there. But when people think of fish, they don't think of them as having the cognitive abilities to be able to respond to any type of conditioning. And I think that might have been what made Tony so endearing to so many people. I think that's why it's important that we... We bring him up here. How does one even begin to start training a African pufferfish? Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. But really the currency of all, of all motivation is survival, right? And these animals have survived for the millions of years that they've been on this planet by being really, really good at taking advantage of resources. So even though we may not perceive them to be as intelligent as some of the higher taxa, these animals know when and where to find food. So if you can link certain behaviors with that opportunity to eat, it's amazing how, how quickly they pick up on it because survival depends on it in the wild. And Tony's been a pretty good pupil so oh, far, it sounds absolutely. like. absolutely, yeah. I mean, he comes right to the surface whenever we feed, and he's ready to do all sorts of really interesting behaviors. They love to eat mollusks and hard-shelled things in the wild, so we like to feed them snails and, and crayfish and things like that. So it's, it's pretty fun. Very cool. So you've mentioned a lot of you mentioned a lot of training so far, you know, with the alligators and even with the fire eel and now and now Tony. Is there any other type of training that some of the species get that are in the river scout habitat? Those are some of the most specific training mm -hmm. examples that we have, but the possibility is really endless. Like we, we have the archer fish in our FW1 habitat, which have this remarkable ability to fire water out of their mouths six to ten feet above the surface of the water to shoot insects off of branches, for instance, in mangrove forests. And I think the training potential for species like that is, is through the roof. And we just, we've yet to scratch the surface. And honestly, Nate, from talking to you and even from the conversations we've had, that's not part of a podcast. It's very obvious that you're very passionate about these animals. 
you know your stuff. You can, you know, you can recount scientific Latin names better than the Latin gentleman that came up with them 200 years ago. <laughs> right. um, where did you get your start? What got you into this? And I'm pretty sure you've basically climbed the ladder here. You started at a, at a lower level aquarist and are now a, a curator. That's quite a bit of distance to travel. Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I was lucky to have a father who taught biology in high school for, for many years before he went on to doing more administrative work, principals and superintendents and things like that. But we were always identifying every tree in the yard, every bird that came to the feeder, every salamander or newt that we found. It was important to know what they were. So from a very young age, my, my dad especially connected me and my brothers to nature in a way that that really fostered a, a keen interest and a passion to, to learn more every day. And that led me to setting up dozens of fish tanks in my parents' house. They were very, they were very patient with me as I filled every room with water in different ways, shapes, and forms. And, you know, they invested in some, some internship and experiential opportunities. When I, was, when I was in high school, I got to, to spend some time on a, on a brigantine sailing vessel off the coast of Maine, which was also a formative experience and really took that love of, of nature and especially the aquatic sciences into college. And uh, as many of us do, I didn't really know how I wanted to apply marine science or aquatic sciences, which was my degree in college. So many different opportunities exist for applying a degree like that in a professional way. And after doing some field research on birds, yes, birds, again, popping up in my CV, but then eventually my first love, which was fish, kind of came back around and I found a really great home in the, in the public aquarium industry. And I'm really, really fortunate to have had the opportunity to join this Georgia aquarium team back in 2005. And I've been here ever since. 2005. Correct. I did not realize you'd been here that long. That's yeah. awesome. I, I helped to bring all the animals into the building. There was only a, a few species already in, in some of our habitats when I started in June of that, of that year. And by November, we'd filled the whole place up. That's insane. I don't know if you remember this or not, the first time that I met you was, I think, almost six or seven years ago now. Yeah. Uh, we were at a, another facility down in Florida. Yes. And you had come down from Atlanta because Tank, the sea turtle, yes. that everyone knows and loves from Ocean Voyager, was in a, a rehab habitat down at a, a oceanarium called Marineland. Mm -hmm. And I remember you showed up and I was there to help, you know, being a big guy, I could help lift up the turtle absolutely and I, was, I remember it was like this is nate super smart guy that kind of deal and i was like hey man i'm josh nice to meet you and you're like hey nice to meet you too and i'm like so he's going up to atlanta huh he's like yeah you know he's a big guy we got to get a big sling and i don't remember the latin name you did it was you know leonardo michelangelo ninja turtleensis or something and i made that up i have no idea but i was like no i think that was exactly oh it. is that it yeah okay, good i was like hey this guy knows his stuff there but yeah we uh I, it was kind of cool every time i see tank here i'm like I remember that day. Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. 97 degrees at 8 a.m. on oh. the beach in Florida, oh, lifting yeah. a, how much does tank weigh? 400 plus pounds at that point, yeah. With Five or lull, six people, yeah. It's a, a massive lull machine that we had to use to- Just to get, get them up, up out of that out of pool. water, yeah. Crazy times there, and yeah, it's just, every time I see tank, I'm like, I remember that. That yeah. was a crazy, crazy morning there. There are so many unique and exciting careers here at Georgia Aquarium, and not all of them require you to wear a wetsuit every day. I'm here with Taylor Reynolds to learn more about her job and how she found herself working at the largest aquarium in the Western Hemisphere. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
So can you tell us just a little bit more about your title and then subsequently your role here at the Aquarium? Absolutely. So I'm Director of Event Sales and Services here at the Aquarium. And essentially what we do uh, is we have about 350 to 400 events a year that we put on that vary in size, um, dynamic, you know, atmosphere. So anywhere from 10 guests to 5,000 guests when we do full facility buyouts, and it can be weddings and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, but then also corporate galas, fundraisers, uh, proms, you name it, we do it. Okay, that's going to tie into this next one here. How did you find yourself working and doing events at the largest aquarium in the Western Hemisphere? Absolutely. So believe it or not, I actually started out as an intern here at the aquarium. So within my department, right out of college, I just thought, where would be a great place and a fun place to work? Uh, And I stumbled upon the aquarium internship within the events department got hired and had a wonderful time and realized I actually had been doing events my entire college career and just didn't realize that's something I could do as an actual career. And there was an opportunity that presented itself, applied for it, and they have been stuck with me ever since. And that was about nine years ago. So it's been a fun ride. Started from the bottom and now you're here. And now we're here. That's awesome. So, okay. With all that being said, with the events and I'm sorry, you said nine years? Yes. Nine years ago. So in those nine years, give us a couple little anecdotes. What are some of the events that you've done that stand out? I'm going to tell you mine right off the bat. You didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. I love it. You know, I love Dragon Con and the Dragon Con event is probably one of the coolest things I've ever experienced in Atlanta. And when Dragon Con comes to the aquarium, it is incredible. I want anybody listening to just Google Dragon Con Georgia Aquarium to see the most amazing, most amazing cosplays you've ever seen with the beautiful backdrop of the animals and the habitats and having Aquaman standing with a whale shark or manta behind him. It's just, that was one of the the coolest experiences when I started working here. So with that being said, you can't take Dragon Con now. What are some events that that over the past nine years that just kind of give you that same kind of Dragon Con moment well, that you I just stole had. one of them yeah, for sorry. sure. But I will say we had a wedding one time that had 14 performers that included Irish dancing an aerialist, a freestyle rapper. And that was just the first time for a wedding I'd ever seen like an actual performance schedule, which was super fun. So it was it was interesting for sure. That was a blast. But I would say too, we do our annual pride kickoff party, which is just always a great way to celebrate and be a part of that community every year. So it's become a flagship event for us. So I thoroughly enjoy that one every single year. And then I would say we had a flow rider here one year as well. And that was incredible to see him down in the atrium and performing. And I just really love having that unique opportunity to have such an intimate experience in the world's largest aquarium. So we get to showcase these guys, but then also provide these really unique and memorable moments for all of our guests that come through. That's awesome. So as we kind of wrap up here, let's say someone listening out there wants to have an event with Irish dancers, freestyle rappers, and Florida. Where can they go to, number one, to check out the events, but also how do, how do they book one here? So it's actually really, really easy. You just go online to our website, georgiaaquarium.org, and you hit up the news and events page, and we'll actually just fill out a form, and then our catering team will reach out. All the details, pricing, availability, and get you going and get you rolling. We'd love to have your event. Come hang out with us. That's awesome. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So with all the stuff you've been involved with, with all the things you've done from 2005, has a majority of your work been here on site or have you had the opportunity to actually venture out and do a really cool thing that Georgia Aquarium does and that's influence things around the world, you know, being able to do our research and conservation programs or rescue programs. Have you been a part of any of those? Sure, yeah. I've gotten a lot of great opportunities to travel with the aquarium, not only to 
to enhance our animal collection, but also to collaborate with other researchers. We have a, a longstanding relationship with the Coral Restoration Foundation in, in South Florida, and I've spent some time down there helping them maintain their coral reef nursery and some other, some other work that's associated with, with coral conservation in the Florida Keys. It's been an, an excellent few weeks in South Africa working with the guys at uh, the Ushaka Marine World in Durban, working with African tigerfish. Uh, so, and then done some really, really great educational stuff through the television programs that George Aquarium has been a part of. Got to spend three weeks in uh, Australia with Jeff Corden, which is a pretty, a pretty remarkable uh, experience in its own right. So with all of those things you just kind of mentioned there, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here and ask you this one. Of your entire time, 2005 here to our recording time, which is August of 2022, what's some of the coolest experiences that you can possibly think of over that time? Wow. One of the, the craziest things where I kind of thought to myself as we were doing it, like, what am I doing here? How did I get find myself in this spot? I went with the aquarium team and uh, the team from Jeff Corwin's Ocean Mysteries television show to far north Queensland in Australia in the Gulf of Carpentaria off of a very strange little town called Weepa in northern Queensland. And the goal of that particular trip was to do a piece on sea snakes some of the most venomous species of snakes in the entire world. So I find myself on the deck of a boat, 10 p.m. at night, raining with a big hoop net in my hands. And I've been told by Jeff Corwin, hey, buddy, we're going to shine a flashlight. When you, see those, when you see those glowing eyes, you're going to scoop that sea snake out of the ocean and throw it on deck. And I paused and said, okay, that sounds simple enough. So off we go into the night, saltwater crocodile-infested waters, sea snakes, coming to the surface as they do at night to feed. And here we go, throwing multiple individuals of multiple different species of sea snakes onto the deck of this very small boat. And there, Jeff Corwin and Brian Fry, a, a researcher on, on snake venom and other types of venom who lives in and works in Australia, were grabbing those sea snakes off the deck of that boat and, and trying to milk them for venom and, and show folks throughout the entire world that were viewers of that program, exactly how fascinating these creatures can be. I can imagine that that's probably at the top of your list there. That just yeah, sounds a crazy it, experience. Just hearing you tell that story, I'm you know, kind of putting myself and I'm sure the listeners are as well in your, in your shoes there. That's a, I guess, unless you were there, it's a really hard thing to imagine, but it just seems like that'd be one of those moments of like, what is this? Sure. And you, and you walk down the beach at places like that and all the signs say, do not go anywhere near this water. Lots of crocodiles, box jellies, sea snakes, the, uh, the Australian Sea up there is, uh, or the, the Gulf of Carpentaria specifically, not a good place for a, for a beach weekend. Wow. All right. So let's bring it back to Atlanta now. All right. What's been one of your favorite experiences here on site, you know, with a team, with a certain animal? What's something that just kind of sticks out from, you know, something that going through your day to day, which obviously, and, and I think folks are aware of this, we are here every single day. So we do kind of have a day to day kind of thing. But what's one or a couple of things that just kind of like, okay, this is something special. This is a moment. It's pretty crazy that, that I have moments like that all the time. It's this particular line of work fits my personality. You know, I, I don't sit behind desk all day long. We get to, to use our hands and our brains to apply science and art toward the goal of educating the public, which is really why I do this for a living. We run around, we get, you know, 15,000 plus steps a day. We're constantly underwater diving, working directly with animals making really, really beautiful and compelling habitats for our guests. And I could name 15 different things that have happened in my career, especially here, 
that were pretty remarkable uh, experiences. The, I mean, just the fact that we get to create so many new habitats, we get to be creative and build habitats that are specifically designed for the species that we're displaying. I really love working with, as I mentioned before, some of these underwater gardens. The, the culture and display of live aquarium plants creates habitats that really feel immersive and real and are really, really great for the, for the animals that live inside of them. So just the day-to-day tending of those planted systems is one of the most gratifying things that, that happen here and really working with a group of people that, that shares the passion that I have for the natural world has, has made every day a, a memorable experience. Very cool. And I mean, you hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, we have some of the most beautifully planted uh, exhibits I think I've ever seen and not giving anything away, but there's some really cool stuff coming up that I'm excited that we're going to be able to share on the podcast one day that that, that you and I are both working on as we speak. So kind of stay tuned for that, guys. There's a lot of cool stuff always happening here. So stay tuned, guys, because you know, when Nate's involved, you know, there's going to be a lot of really, really cool things, a lot of Latin names, and you're... (laughs) Everybody loves those Latin names. Everybody loves the Latin names. And you know it's going to be the best possible exhibit that you can get. So, all right, Nate, real quick, before we leave, let's just say someone is walking around the aquarium and they happen to catch you just having one of those moments, just enjoying a habitat. Where are you? Where are you standing? What are you looking at? I'm probably standing probably in front of that uh, habitat that we call FW4 with the fire eel and the lushly planted uh, environment and watching him stick his nose out of, out, of his, out of his little lair and looking right at home. In that particular spot, you're kind of flanked on either side by really immersive, botanically rich habitats that are full of really, really interesting animals too. So that's where I'll be if you want to come, want to come chat about freshwater fish. And let's say they're walking across Centennial Olympic Park and they see you out there with your binoculars. What's the coolest bird you've seen out here around the Georgia Aquarium campus? The rarest one that I've seen there was probably this little bird called a McGillivray's warbler, which is not supposed to be anywhere close to, to Atlanta, Georgia. They, they nest in the montane west of the U.S. and in winter in Central America. So I found one of those. It's one of the maybe the two or three that's been found in the state in the last 20 years. So that was exciting. But there is a peculiar little bird that a lot of people who live in the country probably heard but never seen. It's called a Chuck Will's Widow. The family name is funny. They're called goat suckers. Capramulgids is the Latin name, and they migrate between southeastern forests in the summertime and tropical areas in the winter in Central and South America. But they're nocturnal, and you almost never see them. But almost every April, I go into Centennial Olympic Park right across the street from the aquarium, and I find one of those fish somewhere every April of every year, which is a pretty remarkable thing, and I've taken some, some pretty great photographs of that species. They're bizarre-looking creatures. Did you mean bird? All right. It's a bird. I promise. It's Chuck, a bird. Chuck okay. Widow. Guys, this guy, he's got fish on the brain. He's got birds on the brain. Always uh, interchangeable there. But Nate, thank you so much for joining us today, buddy. And thank all of you for tuning in. On our next episode, I'll be joined by a very special guest, the brains and heart behind Georgia Aquarium. Tune in to hear from our president and CEO as he shares his own personal journey to running the largest aquarium in the Western Hemisphere. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, 
we thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Life Below the Surface. If you did, please leave us a review and share this episode with your friends. Also, please tell us which topics you would like us to cover in future episodes. Send us a message in the comments or on any of Georgia Aquarium's social media channels. I'll see you in the next episode.